podcast where we talk about women from mythology and folklore all over the world. We're hosts. I'm Zoe. And I'm Lizzie. So, Zoe, you did the research this week. Who are we talking about? So, in honor of the upcoming Lunar New Year, I decided to choose a Chinese lady, and I'm doing Zhu Wangmu, or the Queen Mother of the West from Chinese mythology. Oh, cool. We talked about her a little bit in the Chang'e episode. Yes, and I will mention Chang'e in this episode. Um, nice. So, Wangmu is a Chinese goddess who is also worshipped in neighboring Asian countries such as Japan and Vietnam. And so, as well as being called Queen Mother of the West, which is a calc or literal translation of Wangmu, she has many other titles. Some of the most significant are the Eternal Venerable Mother, as she is referred to by maternist practitioners of folk religions, and also Golden Mother, the First Ruler, as she was often called during the Tang Dynasty. Also, commoners during the Tang Dynasty called her Queen Mother, the Divine Mother, or just Nanny, which I thought was cute. Interesting. Yeah. And she is viewed as a dispenser of wealth, eternal bliss, and longevity, as well as the embodiment of yin or feminine energy. So, a little bit of history. The first mentions of her were found in oracle bones from the 15th century BCE, which describe making sacrifices to a, quote, Western mother. And then one of the earliest depictions of her was in the text, the Shanghai Jing, which is, or the classics of mountains and seas from the Zhou dynasty. So, then the Taoist writer Shuangzi referenced her in about 4th century BCE, describing her as one of the highest deities as she had obtained the Tao, as well as immortal and celestial powers. And she became a very important figure in Taoism, as I'll discuss later. Mm-hmm. And she was a widely popular figure during the Tang Dynasty, particularly in poetry. And the Tang Dynasty is considered by many to be the golden age of Chinese poetry. So that's hmm. cool. So, yeah, I think we mentioned that dynasty in the Chang'e episode, in yeah. like, a lot of depictions of Chang'e. Yeah, I, there was a lot, I think there was a lot of, like, art. It was a big art time for, um, in Chinese history, there was, like, a lot of mm-hmm. art, particularly poetry, being made during that time. Mm-hmm. So, originally, Xu Wangmu was originally a wild, beast-like god whose gender was unclear. They looked human, but had the tail of a panther and the teeth of a tiger, and they were said to be very good at roaring. So, many Chinese scholars believed that early depictions of Xu Wangmu had both masculine and feminine characteristics, thus the unclear aspects of their gender. And they were the ruler of punishment, calamity, and disease, originally. Interesting. And they also lived on the Jade Mountain, which is the home of the supreme divinity, and a place of paradise and happiness for gods and mortals. And then in between the Warring States era and the Han Dynasty, the depiction and conceptions of Shu Wangwu changed greatly from a monster-like creature to a dignified queen. According to the text Mu Shinji Zhong, which is a biography of the Emperor Mu, Shu Wangwu hosted Emperor Mu at a banquet and he was an excellent host, improvising poems and singing beautiful songs to please him. And after this time, her functions increased, and she became the goddess of health, wealth, fertility, and calamity, although she still lived among 
wild animals. So by the when they say calamity, like they said that during the punishment era and also the like healing and wealth part. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's, like what does that mean? I think so it means more like she has the power over good fortune or bad fortune. So like you could pray for her she sort of decides what to just bestow on you and you can pray for her to give you good luck and long life. Um, but she could also like cause more chaos, I think. Okay. She was best known as the keeper of the elixir of immortality. Yes. The same elixir that she gave to the hero Yi in one story and that Zhongle drank and traveled to the moon with. Mm-hmm. So, yes. Reminder of episode six, where we mm-hmm. discuss Zhongle and her story in more depth. And she has a male consort named Dong Gonglong, or the King Father of the East, and they are often depicted together. Although she seems to be more significant than him because she is found depicted alone as well. And he's just mainly shown with her. And the two of them are prayed to for longevity, children, and wealth. And so just a quote about her depictions uh, from the Handbook of Chinese Mythology. She is typically shown as a respectable goddess sitting on a cloud or a seat made of a dragon and a tiger. She is often surrounded by a jade rabbit, a toad, birds, or sometimes a three-legged crow, a deer, a dragon, a nine-tailed fox, and immortal servants with wings. The rabbit, sometimes the immortal servants also, is usually pounding the elixir in a mortar ah. in front of Zhuangmu and Dong Wonggong. So like Chang'e. Yeah. So it seems that the depiction of the rabbit pounding the elixir of life comes is not unique to the story of Chang'e, but it's just the stories associated with the elixir in general. Oh, okay. And so throughout the Tang dynasty, Zhu Wangmu was seen as the embodiment of the yin force and therefore had a special relationship with all women, especially female Taoists. And she is actually especially important to women who do not fit the societal norm of the docile, obedient woman. So that's pretty fun. Yeah. And pretty cool. So there are several stories associated with Xu Wangmu. So Xu Wangmu was the owner of the divine saucer peach, which were fruits that gave longevity to whoever ate them. And she actually often wore a headdress with peaches suspended from them, which sounds like a great fashion statement, and I like it a lot. Yes, that sounds mm-hmm. very stylish. Mm-hmm. She gave the peaches to an emperor, I believe it was Emperor Mu, actually, and he enjoyed them so much that he kept the pits for later use. However, Shi Mu told him that this kind of peach needed 3,000 years to be harvested. So discouraged, the emperor decided not to grow them after all. And so these peaches and Shi Wu are also mentioned in Journey to the West, which is a renowned Chinese novel. In the novel, the peaches are classified into three categories, ones that ripened every 3,000 years and made someone healthy, ones that ripened every 6,000 years and gave someone a long life, and ones that ripened every 9,000 years and could make those who ate them, quote, be as long-lived as heaven and the earth. Huh, okay. So it was like a three, an important number? Yeah, I mean... I don't know the details of it being important, but it seems to be, like, a cyclical thing of every 3,000 years there being a certain peach that ripens. And I think it works because, like, you know, you get at least one peach every 3,000 years. And so, in the novel, Shi Wangmu invites all the immortals to a great banquet in order to serve the peaches. Um, It's called the Saucer Peach Banquet. But in the novel also, the Monkey King, uh, who's a character who is interested in gaining immortality, crashes the ceremony and eats many of the best peaches, which causes chaos and disruption. It's kind of fun. Yeah, it is pretty fun. He seems like a pretty fun character. (laughs) 
So after the Tang Dynasty, when she was revered in poetry, Zhu Wangmu became more popular in folk traditions, and then she was known specifically as the bearer of the peaches. She was depicted as a consort of Yu Di, or the Jade Emperor, the highest ruler of all heaven and the gods. And so they had several children together, and one of them was the Weaving Maiden. In the legends, the Weaving Maiden descended to Earth in secret, where she fell in love with and married a cowboy. Ooh. Yeah. Her mother I was... Dis- I didn't know there were ancient Chinese cowboys. So it says cowboy in um, the Handbook of Chinese Mythology. Um, I looked it up because I was like, wow, really? Um, it was a guy who like was taking care of cows. Oh. So. Okay. <laughs> you know. Like, some said a cow herd, but I, yeah. I like the cowboy because... Yeah, no, that's really fun. fun. You know, she fell in love with and married a cowboy. But her mother was displeased with this union, so she pulled out her hairpin and drew a line in the heavens, separating the two lovers. And the line became the Milky Way, called the Silver River. Aww. And so the two lovers are forced to stand on either side of the shore until every lunar July 7th, when they are allowed to meet again, and a flock of magpies makes a bridge for them. That's really nice. Yeah. I love, like, stories that explain natural phenomena. Mm-hmm. I think that's so fun. Yeah, and I really like um, the idea of the Milky Way being involved in, like, you know, long-lost lovers. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, it's sad, but it's very beautiful. So this next story has a trigger warning for mention of sexual harassment. So, other myths state that Zhu Wangmu is the mother of the sun and the moon alongside Yu Di, who is the father. So, originally, the sun and moon, this seems to be separate from the myth of the ten suns. From, okay, um, I was wondering. The, yeah, because the, in this story, there seems to be only one sun. Um, originally, the sun and moon got along very well. However, the sun eventually began to sexually harass his sister, the moon. So, the moon confronted the sun in front of Yu Di. And the father was so angry that he decided to kill his son. In this moment, Shi Wang Mu arrived. She saw Yu Di about to kill her son and cried, begging him not to do so. Instead, she offered an alternative solution. That the sun and moon be separated in the sky, with the sun coming out in the daytime and the moon coming out only at night. Mm-hmm. And despite I love this... stories like that about the sun Yeah. Moon. We talked about mm-hmm. that in the Sun Goddess episode. Yeah. And so despite this story, or perhaps because of it... Shi Wangmu is more associated with the moon and her connection to Chang'e. She stands the opposite of Shi He, the mother of the Ten Sons. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that it also shows, like, this story shows how powerful a goddess that Shi Wangmu is, because, like, she literally creates night and day, which mm-hmm. is a very significant thing to create. And like you said, um, it being a creation story, which is very fun, um, and then she's the one who causes that creation, I think is very cool. Mm-hmm. And then she has the power to stop the Jade Emperor from killing his own son. Yeah, that's very powerful. So, Shi Wangmu also plays a very important part in the flood story of Chinese mythology. Oh. So, in this story, two gods were fighting each other one year so fiercely that they dislodged and broke the pillar of the sky, Mount Bujo. Since the pillar was damaged, the sky tilted northwest, the earth was damaged in the southeast, and water began flooding everywhere. Shi Wangmu felt sympathetic to the plights of the people on Earth, and along with her older sister, Lishan Laomu, or also Nuwa, another important Chinese goddess, they set out to repair the sky. They gathered and melted down stones of five different colors and used that to patch up the sky. The light from this fire used to melt the stones was absorbed by the sun, 
which allowed it to shine again and warm the earth. It also melted the ice on earth and created a hot spring. They worked together as a team, with Shi Wang Wu stoking the fire and Li Shan Lao Mu kneading the stone paste into cakes and sticking them into the hole of the sky. To support the stones, they cut the legs off of a tortoise and used them as pillars in the four corners of the sky to hold it up. And finally, they used the ashes to fill in the flaws of the earth and the world was restored, and many temples were built to them to honor their accomplishment. That sounds like a really fun story. Yeah. And I think it's really cool that they use fire to fight the power of water. Yeah. Which is very interesting because normally, like, you know, fire is submissive to water or less mm-hmm. powerful to water. Um, but they use it and it works and they work really hard at it. And I think it's I think it's a really cool story. Mm-hmm. It's like they work so hard at it. Like, it seems like a really hard task, but they do it. So, as I said before, Shi Wang Mu played an important role in Taoism. It's likely, it's likely that her adaptation into the religion changed her depiction from the early animalistic roles into her more queenly roles. In a text by Taoist master Tu Kuang Ding, he describes a meeting between Shi Wang Mu and Lao Tzu, the founder of Taoism. In this text, Shi Wang Mu acts as Lao Tzu's superior and is credited as the divine offer of the Tao Te Ching. This text is part of Shangqing Taoism, a goddess-worshipping sect of the religion. Cool. In Dong Dynasty poetry, however, another meeting between Lao Tzu and Shi Wang Mu is depicted. However, in this text, Shi Wang Mu is shown as inferior to Lao Tzu as she calls him by his title and pays him homage. Shi Wang Mu is also said to have interacted with many emperors throughout China's history. Her approval and blessings give great credibility to the emperors and function as a part of the Mandate of Heaven. So some of the most significant interactions include Yu the Great of the Xia Dynasty, who is a great, like, heroic emperor of legend. And he said that Yu the Great studied as a disciple of Shi Wang Wu. She gave Yu the legitimacy to rule as well as techniques needed for ruling. And so her acting as a teacher gives her enormous power because teachers are always above their students in seniority and wisdom in the traditions of Taoism. Mm -hmm. Then, as mentioned before, she interacted with King Mu of the Zhou Dynasty. And this is one of the best-known stories of her interacting with a ruler. So King Mu was traveling to the far western regions of his empire in order to earn the Mandate of Heaven. And he encountered Zhu Wangmu on Mount Kunlun and had an affair with her. He hoped to become immortal, so he gave her many treasures, but he failed in that task and departed. And I have a quote from Wikipedia about this. The relationship between the Queen Mother of the West and King Mu has been compared to that of a Taoist master and disciple. She passes on secret teachings to him at his request, and he, the disciple, fails to benefit and dies like any other mortal. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I think, again, that's showing her in a very, like, powerful position as a master and someone who is a master of the Tao teaching to one of the emperors so i thought that's really cool so then finally it is said that she interacted with qin shi huang of the qin dynasty or the man who united the warring states by his military prowess and began the construction of the great wall so the story says that when he had the opportunity to meet and bless shi wang mu he wasted it his failure to take advantage of his encounter with shi wang mu acts as a cautionary tale he died with no dynasty, and he is known historically as a failed ruler. So worship of Shi Wang Mu often spiked during times of chaos, for example, around the fall of the Han Dynasty. 
So there was a big religious movement that involved singing and dancing to entertain the goddess and also the distribution of special chips made out of straw or hemp. And it was believed that if you didn't have the chips, you would not survive when Shiwangmu came to the world. And so people traveled around the country and gave their chips to others in order to save as many people as possible. That's nice. Yeah. She was depicted on money trees and mirrors with inscriptions offering desires for long life as built by Shiwangmu. So in modern practice, Shiwangmu is still widely revered in folk religion across China, with many temples dedicated to her in areas populated by the Han people. People pray to her for good luck, to get rid of locusts, for rain, for children, recovery from disease, and a long life and wealth. And there's a special temple devoted to her on Tai Mountain in the Shandong province called the Wangmu Pool. Every year on the lunar March 3rd, they celebrate her birthday with a saucer peach festival and they offer sacrifices such as wine, cigarettes, and imitation money. They try to throw coins into basins within the pool, and if they do so, bring them good luck. And they generally have a good time. That's really nice. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on her? I think she's very cool. I think it's cool that she's very powerful and that everyone else must submit to her, especially, like, emperors and even other gods. It reminded me a little bit of Amaterasu. Because, really? yeah, because we're talking about the legitimacy to rule and how they, you know, they had to be, like, sort of approved by Shi Wu and they had to, like, submit to her and mm-hmm. all that. It reminded me of Matarasu because, basically, if you want to be a ruler of Japan, like, it's said that you are descended from Amaterasu, so okay. that was, like, a very important, like, part mm-hmm. of being the ruler of Japan. Yeah. And just, like, this whole idea of having to submit to a goddess. Mm-hmm. I think it's very cool. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's also, like, I don't know if this is universal across all mythologies, but I feel like there's sort of this thing now where it's, like, people think that goddesses were, like, inferior to, you know, men. But Mm -hmm. in reality, goddesses were quite powerful in their respective pantheons. Yeah. Like, and it's sort of been erased by, like, modern thought. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, she was and is super powerful yeah like i said um in her stories it's shown she's super powerful she's shown shown as like a Taoist master over emperors um and a teacher which is very significant i think that's very cool like i don't know if she was associated with like wisdom but regardless like that's cool that she was like the imparter Mm -hmm. of knowledge yeah and also um is she was the um considered to be the first devotional figure to appear and be the overruling devotional figure until the Buddha and Buddhism replaced her in prominence. So she was, like, that level of significance. So she was a huge deal. Yeah. And she's and still she, worshipped Yeah, now. she still is, yeah. Mm-hmm. She's, like, I think the most popular, like, folk religion icon in China. Mm-hmm. Out of um, all the gods. So that's really cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... The very interesting part of Shi Wangmu is that she occupies a space that's not really occupied by any other god or goddess in Chinese mythology. So she sort of serves as a dual role, both as an accessible helper of humanity and as more cosmological goddess as the embodiment of the force of yin. Mm -hmm. And so I think that she was likely so popular as a folk goddess that her influence expanded over time that she became the embodiment of yin and feminine energy. She was just that important. So originally, you know, she was seen as a goddess of luck, a goddess of um, wealth and prosperity and long life. 
And people were so dedicated to her and devoted to her that her influence grew and grew until she became, like, the overseer of this very powerful force. Yeah, like, we talked about this a little bit in the Pele episode, but how people, like, gods who were the closest to the people Mm -hmm. are the ones who had the most influence, kind of. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think that makes sense based on her, like, original form, which is so different from how she's currently depicted as a wild part animal goddess of disease and chaos, Mm -hmm. is that she um, was taken from this very popular folk figure. Um, She was adapted into Taoism and made into a very significant part of that religion, and then became, she was just became so widespread and, like, such an important part of people's lives that she really, like, began to represent in worship and in beliefs, the influence that she had. Mm-hmm. And um, that's actually shown um, by the intendants that are, she's depicted with. So she's generally showed with a toad, a hare, a nine-tailed fox, and devotees. And these spirit symbols are all generally associated with the moon and the story of Chang'e. So these companions, taken in context with the Chang'e story and the ideas about Xinguang Wu in general, offers some thoughts is that perhaps Shi Wang Mu is not immortal naturally, but is immortal because of the elixir she makes. Like Zhang Lu became immortal by taking the elixir. So thus she is not some distant like celestial god who's like been around since the dawn of time, but a god much closer and more accessible to humanity who became immortal through her own personal means rather than like, you know, existing as like this spiritual force that was originally created to be immortal. Mm-hmm. And it's actually implied that worship of her threatened the power of the emperor to some extent, or is considered an alternative to the emperor. Cool. Yeah, so this is shown by how there was a rise in worship of her after the fall of the Han Dynasty, which was a period of significant uncertainty and chaos, and also definitely a time of lack of trust in imperial authority and emperors in general. Mm-hmm. And so you would so, turn to, like, a greater authority. Yeah, so everyone was, like, really upset and angry with the emperors for causing, like, not being able to basically hold the government and the uh, dynasty together. And as the dynasty fell, it became a really, like, it kind of fell into a place of, like, chaos without, like, very many central authorities. And so they, because of, like, how uncertain everything was, they turned to her, who was certain, and like, basically someone they could count on when they couldn't count on emperors or anyone in authority positions, like, any humans in authority positions. That makes sense. Yeah. And it also said in one of my sources that her cult rivaled the domestic order, which implies that it may have challenged the power of the emperor to some extent, and also challenged the social order that determined women to be submissive and docile, because she was so significant and so powerful, and everyone was, like, putting her first, as opposed to, like, them male gods um like for example she was um worshipped in outside of the like emperor state sanctioned worship of sky gods like she was separate from that but people worshipped her widespread anyway and so like she's really a goddess of the people she's not a goddess of like emperors or like authority or royals even though she does have influence on the emperor and then I think it's even cooler that she has influence on them because she's, like, not necessarily one of them. She's more for the common people. Yeah. And it is odd because in some ways it does feel like she really upholds the social order and her existence to some extent. Like, she helps keep the emperors in power. Like, she's not causing revolutions against them. 
Um, she keeps humans from becoming immortal, and she keep she kept her daughter from being with the mortal she loved, and she prevented the son from being truly punished for his actions. But also just the existence of such a powerful female figure during a time like in Confucian Han Dynasty China, where women were supposed to be completely submissive, is very important and significant. And I think that's why she was so important to women who defy gender norms. Mm-hmm. So... One more thing about Shi Longlu that I learned when I was doing my research is that she has also been used as a propaganda piece um, justifying the Chinese occupation of the Xinjiang province, which is where the Uyghur people live. Oh. So, um, basically, uh, the Xinjiang province was conquered by the Qing dynasty in the 1700s, and it's also the home to Mount Kunlun, which I mentioned earlier as, like, being a place where Shi Wangwu lived and called home. And so, throughout um, history, since the, that conquest in the 1700s, the Jin government and other governments past that have used various myths and legends to justify control of the area. And that includes the myth of Shi Wangwu. Wait, like, how? So, like I said, um, the stories say that Shi Wangwu lived on Kunlun Mountain. And they said, well, since that's in the Xinjiang province, we that shows that we've had control of this province for a really long time, even though historically that doesn't actually seem to be the case. Mm-hmm. But actually, that's also not true, because in the, like I mentioned earlier, the earlier Shangzhu text, um, Shu Wangwu was not associated with Kunlun Mountain. She was associated with another mountain, and there was this different spirit associated with Kunlun Mountain. And... Kunlun Mountain was more of like a meta- like a metaphorical place of spiritual ascension and more of a moving point that shifted further west um, and was not specifically located in one place. So the geographical depictions of it from earlier myths were focused on mythological geography and imagining places that had not yet been really encountered. And only really during Han Western expansion did they encounter the imagined locations for real and then did Kunlun Mountain become like an actual real place and part of the mythology. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so, even though only in, like, later texts, or only in some texts, was Shi Wangmu associated with this specific mountain in its specific location in the Xinjiang province, it is the story is basically used as evidence that the Chinese government has had control of the Xinjiang province for a really long time, and therefore justifies continued occupation and control of the province and the people within it. And so I thought this was really interesting and really important because, like, we talk a lot about how great mythology is and how cool it is. And it is really great. It is really cool. It's so interesting. But there are ways in which myths can be weaponized and turn against people and used in harmful ways. And this is one of the ways, situations in which we can see that. And I think that's important to talk about as well. And how it can be used for nationalism and mm-hmm. that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah, nationalism. Using myths for nationalism is a huge thing that you can see. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's a really important point. Yeah. I hadn't really thought too much about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like, and a lot of, like, what mythology around Shi Wangwu, like, sort of is meant to depict her as a historical figure in some ways. Like, she's associated with actual historical figures, like Emperor Mu. And then that sort of, like, in a way, 
almost makes it so she's a historical figure and then therefore her story can be used as historical evidence mm-hmm. rather than like just a mythological character in a mythological story or like a story that's more about like metaphorical things rather than like a very th- or like imagined places rather than like a real physical place mm-hmm. and so like by depicting her like that they're basically saying like oh because it says that she lived here and you know she interacted with all these historical characters and then obviously we china was here from a very yeah. long time because we've talked about how goddesses and folk figures can like can have a real place in a history of a of a people which is Mm-hmm. Often very cool, like Aerosley Dontor, like Pele, mm-hmm. but, and then in this case, it's much, it's a little bit more of a negative thing. Yeah. Like, she's definitely a very influential goddess, and her worship is very important, but her story is basically sort of being co-opted in order to justify oppression of a people. Yeah, so we can see sort of the reverse. And in a way, it kind of reminds me of what I talked about in the Scheherazade episode of how um, Scheherazade's sort of been turned into a character as like an authority on the Middle East and like what the Middle East is like, even though she's like a fictional character. Um, and like weaponized by like Euro- white European authors. White, yeah, white European authors to turn For, like, to an like, Orientalist fantasy. Yeah, yeah, to create an Orientalist fantasy through her through her gaze and storytelling, and basically saying, well, if she says it's real, then it must be real when she. Scheherazade is not real. Scheherazade is a storyteller and a fictional character in a book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, Xu and Wu is very cool. Um, I think it's cool that she was associated with, like, dragons and tigers. Mm-hmm. And lots of different animals. Like, it seemed like you were talking about a lot of the animals that are part of the Chinese zodiac. That's a really good point. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. Not all of them. Like, I don't think the deer is part of the Chinese zodiac, but, like... Yeah. Rabbit, dragon, tiger... Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, and she is a really cool character, and her influence is very important. I think that she as a figure has been very cool. Yeah, she sounds, um, like, very interesting and powerful, and mm-hmm. I like learning about goddesses, especially, like, I don't know if she, if she counts as, like, a mother goddess, because mm-hmm. the mother goddess figure is, like, partially, it's like not really, like, a mother necessarily, but mm-hmm. more like a, a creation character of, like, a mm-hmm. people and that sort of thing. yeah. Which is always really cool to see in different cultures. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, she's definitely sort of has, like, um, that motherly or, like, creation relationship with the people. I mean, she is called Queen Mother of the West. And she, you know, is really there for people to turn to her for asking for help, for luck, and prosperity, and everything. And, like, Mm -hmm. she's close to them and someone that they can really talk to. She's not, like off in the clouds and in the heavens like other gods yeah she's of the people yeah definitely i also think it's cool that she has this association with the moon because you also yes. said that she was like very important to like i don't know womanhood and everything yeah so mm-hmm. it's kind of uh, you can see the connection there yeah so she's definitely a, like she's sort of the embodiment of yin energy and i think that's definitely tied to her association with the moon because mm-hmm. i believe those uh, the yin, yin energy and the moon are linked together and associated together. That would make sense. Everything. And do you know if she was associated with any other, like, goddesses from different cultures at all? Not that I could find, really. Um, okay. I Like, I know she was, like, also worshipped in um, Vietnam and Japan because they had, like, names for her in Vietnamese and Japanese that were also used. But I think, you know, it just shows her influence and in that, like, 
she was one of the goddesses that was sort of adopted or taken on by other near nearby places. Mm-hmm. So happy Lunar New Year, Year of the Ox. Let's hope it brings good fortune to everyone and we all have a good Year of the Ox. Yeah, so happy Lunar New Year and thank you, Zoe, for telling us all about Shimon Moon. And thank you for listening. Uh, please subscribe and listen to other episodes if you enjoyed this episode. And yeah. Thank you. Goodbye. May the Ladies Podcast is produced by Elizabeth LaCroix and Zoe Kenninger. Today's episode was researched and presented by Zoe Kenninger. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at MetheLadies and visit us on our website at MetheLadies.com. Our cover art is by Helena Cayo. Our music was written and performed by Icarus Tyree. Thanks for listening. See you next week.